I have the privilege of opening up perhaps the most recognizable parable in the whole Bible, so much so that this term, this phrase, Good Samaritan, is just used by the average person, even if they don't know the origins that it comes from the Bible. You ask the random person on the street, what do you think when you think Good Samaritan? And whether they come from a Muslim background or atheistic background, they're going to have a general idea of someone doing good. And, and that's here in this text, for sure. And if you go a little deeper, there's more about loving those who aren't like you, especially ethnically different, racially different from you, prejudice, going deeper into that. But there's actually far more levels and layers in this parable that I have never, never imagined. And that is one of the great joys I have as as someone who gets to prepare God's word for you is because I can look at a passage that I thought I knew everything about and realize I knew very little. And in fact, there's so much more here than meets the eye. So I'm so excited to go into that. The first nine chapters as we've been going through Luke has been answering this question, who is Jesus? And as we've shifted now from chapter 10 and on, the question now is, what does it look like to follow him? From chapter 10 and on. And so this parable helps us understand a little bit more what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus In the beginning of chapter 10, we see Jesus multiplying the message, proclaiming the message of the kingdom through these 70 or these 72 people. And then now we're going to not look at just the message, but the lifestyle of the messengers, lifestyle of those who follow him. Not just the message of those who follow him, but the lifestyle of those who follow him. And so what we're going to see today in our passage is that those who know the love of God will love like God. That is, all kinds of people without limit. We'll go into that deeper. I don't need to repeat that. So this parable is going to answer two very important questions that everybody should be asking and wondering about. One, what must I do to have eternal life? And number two, how would one live if they truly knew the mercy or love of God? All right, let's dive in. Verse 25, Luke 10, 25. I'm so excited to do this with you. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's stop here. When you hear lawyer, think an expert of the law, not like the court of law in a legal sense, but the religious law, the Old Testament. He would have known the scriptures up and down and would have memorized all of it. In fact, it is most likely that he would have a phylactery on his head. He literally would have God's law written on a piece of paper, folded up in a little tiny box, and then kind of like strapped around his head. Have you ever seen that picture? It, it looks quite crazy, but they're literally trying to get God's law on their forehead. He would have the words of the Shema. He would have the words of loving God with everything right on his forehead. And so imagine this scene. Jesus is teaching, and this guy stands up and says, teacher, How do I inherit eternal life? But notice that Luke gives us some backstory. The guy is not asking out of the sincerity of his heart because he wants to know. He's asking with motivation, with with nefarious negative motivation. He's trying to trap him. He's trying to get him. He's trying to maybe get him to say something controversial so he can report it, so he can start a feud. Because during that time, a lot of different rabbis had different schools of thought regarding this question, how do you eternal life? So often they would ask Jesus because they want to pit him against controversial or other leaders, 
Which side do you take, Jesus? He doesn't really want to know the answer. It's a question that doesn't actually care about the answer, but it has ends to the question. Deep, dark ends. But I want to share with you that this is, though a very important question, it's a very bad question. How to inherit eternal life. Two reasons why this is a a bad question, though it's an important question. Well, number one, it's a bad question because think about the word inherit. How do you inherit something? You, You have to be born into a family. You don't earn inheritance. That's like one of you coming, Joel coming to me, a grown man coming to you. Hey, Sam, how can I have your inheritance? Well, first, Joel, you have to be one of my sons. And that's the problem is you have a, another dad, right? You can't inherit something unless you're part of a bloodline, until, unless you're part of adopted, at least, into the family. And the second reason why this is a bad question, though understandably uh, 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 an understandable question, is that it totally misunderstands what eternal life is. Let me show you a passage real quick. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you. So what's eternal life? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in other words, eternal life is not a place. It's a person. It's a person. You will have a relationship forever, forever and ever at a place in heaven. But when we think eternal life, we think about, hey, how do I get to that place one day when I die? But, but Jesus teaches us that eternal life is far more than a place. It's a person. It's knowing someone. And it doesn't start one day when you die. It actually starts the moment you know him. So I have already begun eternal life because I know him. So two reasons why it's a bad question, but it's an important question. And so he's asking, and, and Jesus plays along with this question, this line of reasoning to teach him something. Now, because we know that he's asking for wrong motivations, that must color the way we understand his answer. Because if he was just asking an honest question, then we would be able to understand Jesus' frame of thinking as he answers. But, but, we, but, but most likely, Jesus is going to be answering him to expose the kind of thinking that he has. He's trying to teach him with more questions. He said to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, since you know the whole Bible, how do you, what, what, what would you say? How do you interpret the answer to the question? Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he answers the way many other Jews would have answered. He combines the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and combines Leviticus 19.18. The greatest commandments. Love God with all of your being, in every sphere of life, with all of who you are, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. What we see Jesus do this in other passages, Mark 12, Matthew 22, what he basically says, you take the 613 commands of the Old Testament, and you sum up the essence of every single one of them, if you look at every single of those commands, the root of it is this, loving God, loving people. And it's simple. But, but just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. And that's a big deal in this passage. Notice one thing. Jesus speaks of loving God with everything and loving people as yourself together. Horizontal and vertical love. 
And so often, religious people like to divide them, as if you could love God with everything and yet not love others. Or you can love others and not love God. We love to divide those, but what Jesus does and what Scripture does regularly is bring them together. In fact, the way, the amount of love we have for God, the quality of the love, the authenticity of our love for God is actually demonstrated often in the way we love others. Now, let's see Jesus' response to the expert of the law's answer. Does he answer correctly? Look at verse 28. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Ding, ding, ding. He nails it. But then he says this, do this and you will live. Do what? What's the this? The greatest commandments. And then you will live. But who can do all this perfectly and live? That, that, that is the kicker. Listen to Philip Ryken, scholar. He says this. <clears throat> all that the lawyer had to do, all that anyone has to do was to keep the two great commandments by loving God and loving his neighbor. If he did this and kept on doing it, in contrast to the lawyer, Jesus used the present tense. He would gain eternal life. But keeping these commandments is easier said than done. And there lies the problem. The love that God requires is perfect love. Not just once, as the lawyers seem to think, but all the time. To love God truly with heart, soul, mind, strength is to love him with everything we are and have. To love our neighbors properly is to love them with everything we are and have. To love our neighbors properly, sorry, I, I said it wrong. To love our neighbors properly is to love them with the same intense interest and listen, and constant concern that we have for ourselves. But who has ever loved in such a wholehearted and supremely selfless way? If we're going to try to earn eternal life by doing things, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. Look at Galatians 3.10. If you're taking notes, you can look it on the screen also. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? For or because it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Notice you can live. There's a great promise here. You can live. But what do you have to do? <laughs> you have to do all these things. You have to abide by all of them and do them. Again, who among us can do such a thing? So, so you can live by the law if you do all the law perfectly. If the lawyer thinks eternal life can be obtained by doing what the law demands, he will have to learn how extreme those demands are. Let's look at Jesus' is response a little closer. Jesus says, do this and you will live. As he's speaking to the lawyer and him saying, do this and you will live, what is that implying? Well, that's implying that the, the lawyer is actually not doing these things. He's not doing all of this. Just because you know the right answer doesn't mean you actually get it and are living it out, which is always going to be the danger for any of us who grew up around the church because you know the right answer but that doesn't mean you know it and you're doing it. So after this singing rebuke from Jesus, it's just kind of like an implicit sidestep of Jesus that kind of rebukes the lawyer. The lawyer has one comeback. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself. Can you guys say that with me? Justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
I can't do justice to how much is loaded in this one verse, verse 29. But first of all, notice this phrase, justify himself. When do you justify yourself? Well, when you're like convicted by something, when you're accused by something, you're you justify yourself when you feel conviction about something. So, so one of you guys accuses me of something, and then all of a sudden I say, well, well I did that because I, of this, and, and I was tired, or because this happened. That's why I did it, right? Well, we self-justify when we feel conviction or condemnation or guilt. And it's possible that the, the, the lawyer is feeling guilty at some level. He knows he's not living out all these commands. He's not living out the greatest commandments. Thus, in order to justify himself, what does he do? He, rede- he redefines the terms. He wants to redefine what it means to love. He wants to limit love so that he can self-justify that he can live out these commands. There are three common ways that you're going to see in this passage and in our life how we can limit love. We limit love by doing three things. We limit the who. We limit the when, and we limit the how much. The who, the when, and the how much. First, he limits love by narrowing the scope of who he has to love. By asking who is my neighbor, that implies there is such a thing as a non, a, not a neighbor. You tracking with me? To say who is my neighbor implies that there's so, somebody out there who's not your neighbor. And so he's trying to get Jesus to get him off the hook in one sense. And so tell me who my neighbor is, because if you tell me who my neighbor is, then I can tell you that I've done that. Because in this context, in this Jewish context, oftentimes the neighbor was someone very, very specific who looked a very specific way, who talked a specific way, who acted a specific way, who was born from the specific right families. And so Jesus, tell me who my neighbor is so then I can come back and justify myself and say, bam, I've loved all those people well. I'm justified. I've earned an eternal life. See, because the Jewish mindset of love, in general, obviously, anytime we speak about people groups, it's very, very important that we don't overly generalize because there's always exceptions or typically exceptions. But in general, the Jewish mindset of love was you love those who were like you, who were of you. And then those who aren't, you could show charity to them, but you could also hate them. Let me show you how I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. There is um, extra biblical writings, so writings outside of the scripture by Jews that were authoritative for many. One from Syriac, Jesus um, I forgot the name, but his name was Jesus, actually. Jesus of Ben something, son of somebody. Um, but I deleted it in my notes. But, but look at what it says. The next line, the next uh, slide. Oh, actually, I deleted it. <laughs> I try to cut so much so I don't go 50 minutes. All right. Check out what this author writes. Do good to the devout, and you will be repaid. Okay. If not by them, certainly by the Most High. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Give to the one who's good, but do not help the sinner. So that that scripture for some Jews, uh, that, that was the mindset that they had. But let me be clear. 
The Old Testament does not speak in those ways. There are tons of passages that speak of loving those who are not like you, loving the foreigner, loving your enemies in many ways. Let me give you one quick example. You can look on the screen in the New Living Translation, Leviticus 19. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Another example is that we see Job, and, and, and another mindset they would have is that if someone was in a dis, in, um, dis, disadvantaged state, if their life was going poorly, the conclusion would be, you must have done something wrong, or your parents did something wrong. Therefore, God is cursing you. That's why your life is hard, right? And we see this in the book of Job. His friends think that you must have done something terribly wrong because your life looks so wrong. We saw this in our reading of Gospel of John this last week, if you're reading the New Testament with us. Where, Jesus, who sinned? This man who's been blind for 30-something years or his parents? Right? That was the mindset of the, the Jew, that, that if you were in, in a bad state, it was your fault. You did something wrong to deserve it, and God is punishing you. But yet, despite all the Old Testament's teaching on loving others, somehow the majority of Jews ignored those passages and they adopted a very much uh, insular kind of way to love. A love that was very limited in the people, the who, the what, and the how, and the when. So if you do not fit in the right categories, God did not expect you to love those people. So they thought. So Jesus wants to expand the lawyer's understanding of who, his, his, who is his neighbor with a story. So now let's go to the famous story, which I'm calling the compassionate Samaritan, which gets at the heart of it a little bit more, starting at verse 30. <clears throat> Would you read this out loud with me while I drink? Jesus replied, <clears throat> Okay, so imagine Jerusalem's here. Jericho's here, about 17 miles away, but it's going down about 3,600 feet. 17 miles of treacherous terrain. Lots of bends and corners where people can hide. If you go there by yourself, it could be very, very deadly. Lots of robbers loved hiding out there because it would be a long trek to get to help. So this is a really treacherous place. So imagine this picture. A man is traveling down and he's on it, and a bunch of guys come, and they strip him and beat him, beat him, and leave him half dead. So here's a man, naked. He's half dead. So most likely he's unconscious, can't speak. No clothes to identify who he is. No ability to call for help. No cell phone. No Apple watch to check his heartbeat. He's just done, out there, alone. So then the question comes, who's going to come help such a man in such a state? So here are the surprising responses from the, in quotes, good people. Look at verse 31. Would you read this with me? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. <clears throat> the 
We hear of two men who were experts of the law, much like the lawyer. These men would have had reputations of being godly. These people knew their Bibles. They would have been known as great examples for the community. People that mothers would point to their children and say, you can be like him one day. And yet, what do they do when no one is watching them, when someone is in great need? They cross the other side and ignore the person. One important note is that they're all coming from Jerusalem. Note that in the text. It says, from Jerusalem. So most likely, they finish their duties, their religious duties. So they don't have the excuse of saying, well, I need to go do my duties for the Lord. Or if I touch a dead man... I may get unclean and disqualify myself because you would have to, if you touched a dead body according to Old Testament law, you would be relieved of your duties for seven days. But they don't have those excuses, do they? One very, very likely excuse would be the fact that if this man is half dead, then it's possible that the robbers are just around the corner. So, hey, they got to get going because they got to take care of themselves, right? But when you think about it, these guys are basically like coming from church. They just had a really great religious experience with God. And as they leave the temple, they see this man and they cross over the other side. In all, the, all these situations, I would assume that these guys probably had something to do. It, it's not a modern reality that we're busy. Like I never ask someone, are you, are you busy? And they're like, no, I'm really available. Everybody says they're busy, and just like that, these men would be very, very demanded. A lot would be demanded from them. They would have lots of excuses. I I got places to go, people to see. Just like us, right? And I bet they could rationalize it in their heads so quickly. See, this is a second common way we limit love, by when we love. We, We limit love by who we love, And we define who is worthy of our love. And then we also limit love by when we love. We will love when the time works for our schedule or when our energy levels are right or the season of life is right. Then then and only then will we love. But when you think this way, guess what? When never comes. When never comes. Just like no one's ever ready for a baby. Oh, we're perfectly, we have all the money we need and we have... To plenty of bandwidth and emotional energy. We can have a kid now. That never comes. <laughs> I got a witness. So the story slaps the hearers in the face. The leaders of the society that they look up to, that they would hope would be the example, actually horribly fail. And instead of responding with compassion, they act like heartless cowards. So now Jesus takes this parable to a new level of shock. At this point, the hearers would expect maybe a good old humble Israelite coming along and saving the day. Everybody loves a good underdog story, right? Oh, let's get one of those. And yet Jesus shifts gears in a way that would probably cause emotional whiplash. Look at verse 33. The right response from the wrong person. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, and right as he says that, Many of them probably just threw up in their mouth. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, or perhaps right then they just all cursed beneath beneath their breath. As he journeyed, came to where he was, he being the man who was half dead. And when 
The Samaritan saw him. He had, can you say that word with me? Compassion. This is no hero to the Jewish audience. This is a Samaritan. People often call this parable the good Samaritan, but according to Jews, there were no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's like saying the parable of the good Nazi. It just doesn't fit in their paradigm. Nazi and good, Samaritan and good. Those things do not come together. See, according to the Jews, the Samaritans were the result of Jews who intermarried for many generations and were impure half-breeds who betrayed the law and God's people. And according to the Samaritans, they had their own story. They, they said they were the true keepers of the law. They created their own temple. They had their own way of life, and they believed they were the right way. But the, the mindset for the average Jew towards Samaritan was hostility. The word Samaritan is used in a derogatory way. Look at verse, uh, John chapter 8, verse 48. <clears throat> the people retorted, this speaking about Jesus, after he said something they didn't like. You Samaritan devil. Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon, right? In our context today, if someone called someone a Samaritan, is it, it's used favorably, right? Oh, you good Samaritan. But back then you could have just like, just replaced the word, oh, you good Nazi, right? It just would be like, what? That, that doesn't work. For us to understand the disgust, it, it would be, I try to think of some sort of illustration that would fit. It would be like this. Imagine a, a democratic socialist like uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And let's say she's... Some of you guys are just laughing at the thought of what I'm about to say. But imagine she's half dead, okay? God forbid. She's half dead. She's got beaten up. She's lying on the ditch. And who, lo and behold, Nancy Pelosi walks by, sees her, crosses the road. Oh, no, Nancy, you're supposed to be there for me. And then she looks up, and lo and behold, Bernie Sanders walks. And he ignores her, too. And then to her shock and amazement, she looks up and another person comes, orange, (laughs) and it's Trump. And Trump is the one who gets into the ditch and helps her. Now, I know that's absurd (laughs) because Trump wouldn't do that. (laughs) And I'm not saying I want AOC to be in a ditch. By by no means do I I mean ill for her. But do you see the absurdity of it? It's, it's It's a role reversal. It doesn't makes sense. That's, that's the whole point of the story, and that's why I try to bring it to our modern, modern political climates. What are the ethnic implications for us today when we just even look at that past? I'm going to just do a quick aside real quickly. A couple of things real quick. First, we can easily villainize other people groups or political parties. What the Jews did to the Samaritans and what the Samaritans felt about the Jews is what we still do today. We, we quickly try to categorize people by something they say and, and help us. Uh, tell me what you are so I can quickly put you in the box. And we villainize that person. We dehumanize them. And I think the fact that Jesus in this parable leaves the ethnic identity of the dying man out is on purpose. Because he's trying to highlight that he's a human being. He's made in God's image before he's a Jew or a Samaritan or before he's black or white or a a Republican or a Democrat. And so often in our world, the church can follow the world's example. And what we do is we think the greatest evil is outside of us rather than being concerned with the greatest evil that can be inside of us. 
Oh, those Democrats or oh, those Republicans, they're so blank. And yet we fail to see the evil that can be in us as well. Now, let's take a quick look at the word compassion, getting back to the text. The word compassion, a word that we all use, common word in our English language, but biblically it's far more richer and robust and meaningful than our modern-day conception and use of the word. This word compassion in Greek is a favorite word in Greek classes because it's spolankna, okay? It just rolls off the tongue and people love it, spolankna. But this word, compassion, isn't just sound nice. It, the reason why it's so impactful is because it talks about feeling something in your guts. Like, have you ever loved someone so much or have been hurt so much emotionally that you feel it on your insides? You literally feel sick. It gets you. It's like you got punched in the stomach. That's the kind of feeling the Samaritan has when he sees this half-dead man. He feels it like he got punched in the gut. He feels it in his spelanknas, deep inside of him. He feels this compassion. That's the kind of love we are speaking about. That's the kind of mercy. And here's the reality. I think even every single person, whether a Christian or not, God has given this kind of gut reaction feeling when we see suffering. It's a normal thing. But the problem is, is that when we say no and do not respond as we ought to, when we feel that, eventually we stop feeling that. And if you feel that and you respond accordingly, appropriately, that feeling actually gets calibrated with, the, with heaven's heart, with God's heart, and you will feel it even more when you need to feel it. And the danger is, is that some of us whether you're listening on the web or, or you're here with me right now, is that you have said no to that spelankna so much that you don't feel anymore for others in suffering. Now let's go beyond just talking about the word compassion means, but what does it look like in action? What does spelankna, what does compassion look like with flesh on it? The cost and look at compassion, and look of compassion. Look at verse thirty-four and thirty-five. The Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. There's just so much here. Please remember, this man was on a journey. It's not like he had nothing to do. It was like, and there came a good Samaritan who was bored and was just wandering around. No, he was on a journey. He had something to do, but he got, he had a holy detour that he was willing to take. See, compassion often requires interruption. If you only love and show compassion when it doesn't inconvenience you, then you don't truly love and you will never love. Because we're always going to be inconvenienced. It's not like we never have nothing to do. So he stops his journey, goes down into the ditch with him, gets dirty, gets that man's blood on him, potentially Jewish blood, which would be abhorrent to a Samaritan, stained by on his clothing, and then binds him up, 
these open raw wounds, cleaning them up with oil and wine, and then instead of riding on his animal, puts the man on the animal and probably walks with him for miles until he gets to an inn. This isn't a, uh, let me open my window and give a dollar because I'm guilty and I don't want to make eye contact with a homeless person there. This is a, I'm going to interrupt my whole week because you're dying and you need help. This is an interruption of interruptions. This isn't a, I was texting one second, you're interrupting me. This is a, your whole week is rescheduled kind of interruption. And talk about a situation where you can get extorted. Let's look at verse 35. And the next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. <laughs> How crazy that is. Hey, take care of him. And if anything goes over this two denarii, I'll pay it. What kind of love are we talking here? Two denarii would be about a day's wage. A denarius would be about a day of labor. So imagine for your context, how much you make in full, two full days of work. And then imagine giving it like that. And then saying, I'm not going to just give that and nothing else. I'm going to give that and I'll give more based off the need. <laughs> One scholar, D.A. Carson, made the point that it's possible that he said that because if the innkeeper ran out of the two denarii and the man still needed more care and more resources, that he would have legal right to sell him for profit as a slave. <laughs> so, so the Samaritan knows this and he's preemptively preventing this man's selling into slavery while he's half dead because it's going to take a long time for him to recover, especially with that kind of medicine and that kind of care they had then. This man is loving without limits. This guy is loving a guy who's a stranger who, if was conscious, would probably spit in his face for being a Samaritan. Probably will never be able to thank him to his face. Probably, if he wakes up, will say, how dare you? You should have left me as dead, you Samaritan dog, for touching me. That could have happened. And yet he loves without limits. Love, even if he never gets thanks or never gets it on Instagram or Twitter of what he's done. Because it's the right thing to do. And there are three common scenarios I thought about when we choose not to love someone. Reasons, three reasons. One, we realize off the bat this will cost us too low, too low, too, it'd be too costly to love this person, so we just choose from right off the bat not to love. Number two, we start to love and realize the cost is too much, so we stop loving. Well, I didn't know it would be like this. Or three, we love but realize the person is not responding like we'd hope. They're not loving us back or they're not giving us back or, or caring for us back, and so therefore we stop loving. See, see, do you ever see this need in your heart and you think, you ever see need in people and you think to yourself, I don't have time for that. That's too messy. It's too costly. Or do you ever love looking for love in return? I will love you as long as you feel appropriately grateful. But if I sense ingratitude as I love you, then I'll stop loving you. When it comes to the cost of love, we can sometimes think, I can't afford to give to the poor and needy, or I can't afford to give to my church. But what we are really saying is, I can't afford to give without it burdening me. 
without hurting my living standards, without really making me radically sacrifice. Now, I want to say something pretty insane, but hear me. If you can afford to help, you are not helping enough. It took me a few times to get that. If you can afford to help, you're not helping enough. I'm going to just let that sit. Some of you will get it. Some of you won't. If you can afford to help, you're not helping enough. The pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards, hundreds of years ago, had a problem in his church. Same kind of problem every church has. That, that is, a lot of the people struggled loving the poor and the destitute, the complicated, the messy. And so many members struggle with this. So in one sermon, he tackles the most common excuses and objections to loving these people. And here's one that stuck out to me. Here's the objection. But they brought their trouble onto themselves. I don't have to help when they have brought it on themselves. Isn't that a very, very normal, natural human inclination? I'm not going to help you. You did it to yourself. It's one thing to help someone who is, a, who is a victim of some tragedy that no one could have prevented and anybody could happen, right? It's easy to have compassion for someone like that. Like, oh, a tornado went through their house. Let me help you. But it's another thing to love someone when you know that they are the cause of their troubles. Especially if you said, hey, don't do this. And then they go out and do it. And now they ask, they're asking for help. You guys know what I'm saying? I have felt that. Like, oh, how dare you ask for me to help after you disregarded my advice? And as a pastor, I can feel that regularly because I give a lot of advice. And a lot of times people don't listen to me. Here, Edwards' response. It's on the screen. But Christ loved you, pitied you, and greatly laid himself out to relieve you from all that want and misery which you brought on yourself by your own folly. Should we not love others as Christ loved us? Church, we love others without living limit, even if they screwed it all up and it's their fault. Because that is the kind of love God shows us every day. Are you any different? Let's look at Jesus' call for how we ought to respond to this parable. The call for here is go and do likewise, verse 36 to 37. Look at verse 36 with me. Did you read this out loud? Which of these three... Jesus does something really, really sneaky that I've never caught before until some scholars pointed out. So don't think I'm clever. I just read. I know how to read. The lawyer, lawyer's question asked, who is my neighbor? In other words, who must I love? Jesus shows us that our neighbor is whoever is in need and in front of us that I may be able to help. The parable also reveals that one cannot say in advance, who your neighbor is, but the course of life will make that plain enough, okay? So that's just the basic answer, who's your neighbor? But Jesus does something crazy. He flips it all. He has a bigger lesson to teach the lawyer and the audience and for us. The way the expert of the law asks the question makes the neighbor someone he has to love, but Jesus flips it and asks, who became a neighbor to the man who was victimized by the robbers? You see that? It took me a few times to grasp it. 
Jesus flips the mindset. Instead of wondering who qualifies or who is worthy of my time and attention and my affection and my treasure as for my love, Jesus calls us to be a neighbor. A neighbor is something we are. It's a way of life. It's not someone you choose to pick as someone worthy of your love. I, I never heard that before. The, the parable is, is actually not what we think. It's not about who, who do we love. It's who we, what kind of people love are we? And it goes even one more layer deeper. We are not the Samaritan. Here's the biggest flip where I never considered regarding this parable. When we read the story, like most Western individualistic Americans, we read the story with ourselves as the hero and the main character. And so the call for us as we read this parable is often, hey, we need to go and be good Samaritans, right? Have you guys ever heard that? Yeah, it makes sense. Indeed, the lawyer's question assumes this kind of position of superiority and power to help someone in need. So it's like, hey, I'm in a position of power. Who can I help, Jesus? But what does Jesus do? Jesus' story calls us not to see ourselves as the Samaritan, but as the half-dead man. A position of weakness and inferiority. Jesus flips all this to show the Jew that he's in need of mercy as well. He's actually not in the position of a power like he thinks to show mercy. He actually needs mercy. Which leads us to our final verse in the next point. Verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy, the lawyer answers. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Possibly because of his pride and his racism, the lawyer, the Jewish lawyer, can't even muster to say the word Samaritan is the one. He doesn't want to put the Samaritan in a positive light. So he says, the one who showed mercy. So Jesus calls us to simply do as do the same as a Samaritan, which is the basic kind of interpretation, and, and it's, it's a good one. But there's more here. Because what we've seen, it's more simple to talk about love than to actually love, right? We all know that. This kind of limitless love this scripture speaks about, it's not say hi to someone or give someone a nice encouraging word once in a while. This is an otherworldly kind of impossible love. And I could spend the next few minutes I have with you talking about all the stats in North Minneapolis and all the woes of our world, and maybe I can inspire you to give a little bit more, volunteer a little more, but we all know that that won't last longer than a little bit. Eventually, the demands of love will overwhelm and exasperate and deplete our selfish, limited love, and we will eventually love even less. There's only one way you can live this kind of lifestyle of radical love. And that is one way. You need to realize that spiritually you are like that half-dead man in the ditch and you need mercy. And when you receive that mercy, then your heart is transformed to now give that kind of mercy. This limited, limitless love that Jesus calls us in this passage is impossible unless you receive the limitless love from God. That's the only way this passage can be a reality in any of our lives. And so let me, as I kind of land the plane here, 
Let's look at the ultimate neighbor. First of all, this passage shows us how much we need Jesus. Because who loves like this? I mean, all of us here, if we pulled you out and heard your best stories of compassion in your life, you could say, oh, I spent a week in Mexico loving these orphans, and I did this one time, no one knew about it. And man, praise God for that. But can you love like that all the time, anyone? You can't. If we have to earn our way by loving like this, who among us would live? Who among us could have eternal life? See, this is the other sneaky point in the parable. You cannot earn eternal life by loving enough because you will never love enough. And that's why the compassionate or the good Samaritan points to someone even better, someone even more compassionate. And remember, whenever we see good in other people, it is just the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg of how good God is, just giving us a glimpse of his heart. If you know you have not loved God perfectly and loved others as you love yourself like me and like all of us here, then you know you have failed to keep the law and you will not inherit eternal life and you will not live. But here is the good news. Unlike the priest and the Levi, Jesus does not cross over the road and ignore us. Jesus gets on a cross for us. Jesus gets in the ditch and gets dirty with our mess. He gets stained by our sin and our blood. He heals our wounds and bandages our bro- broken bodies and our souls. And he doesn't just love at great cost to himself. He loves to the point of death, the ultimate cost. In fact, the most appropriate way to illustrate what Jesus does for us spiritually is like we're dying in the ditch and he gets in, rescues us, and then substitutes himself and gets into the ditch, dying for us. That's the most accurate way to picture what happens in the gospel. Marvel at this kind of love because unlike the Good Samaritan who had no idea what this man was like, No idea if this man put it on himself. Maybe this man was like heckling a bunch of people when they fought him back. Maybe this guy was a bad guy himself. Jesus knows every single thing you've done, everything you said, everything you think of now and forevermore. Knowing all that, he still gets into the ditch. Fathom this kind of love. This is this marvelous kind of love. And he doesn't just give some money to someone else to see the person through to health. He gives us his own spirit to complete the work he started, to keep us till glory, to finish what he begins. Now let's talk about that word justify again as I end. You don't have to be like the lawyer and self-justify yourself anymore because Jesus perfectly lived out the law because we couldn't. And you can give up self-justifying because God will justify you if you're putting your hope and trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And this rescue is for everyone and anyone. For your friends, for your family, for your coworkers. If you simply give up your loveless control in your life and put your trust in Jesus. And if you haven't loved God with all your being and loved your neighbor yourself, please come talk to one of us. And if you're watching online, please reach out to one of us. We'd like to tell you more about this love. And so what's the result of knowing this kind of love daily for us Christians? As we receive his compassion and his mercy daily, that compassion and mercy flows through us increasingly. 
and we can love without limits. How does this passage turn from a crushing burden, an impossible example that we can never bear to being something that's real in our community is that we daily receive and bask in the mercy and love of God. And then it flows through us by his spirit. So if you're trusting in Jesus today, which I know you guys, I know all but probably three of you or four of you in here, ask God for a fresh revelation of his compassion and love towards you. If you feel burned out and you can't love anymore and you're so tired of loving hard people, you're probably disconnected from God's love right now. I'm not saying he doesn't love you. I'm saying you've disconnected yourself from receiving his love. So no matter what background or ethnicity or political background, we can love revolutionarily like this, love radically because we've been loved without limits. So church, this week and forevermore, let us show the mercy to others that we have been given. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this passage is easier said than done, as we see. We can, in fact, be like the lawyer and put these words in a box and put it on our head. We could post it on our Facebooks. We could tattoo it on our bodies, but this kind of love can only come by your grace. So Father, I ask that you would spread through our whole church, our people and our visitors, a fresh revelation of your compassionate mercy. And that would transform our hearts to then be conduits of that mercy to others to those who are least like us, those who are difficult to love, those who need so much mercy. And our world needs mercy. Use our church and all other faithful churches in the Twin Cities to be that mercy our cities need so badly. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who is not trusting in you, who doesn't know your love, let them, let them call out. And would you get right into the ditch of their life, the ditch of their muck and their mire and their sin, and would you pick them up and heal them and they could be part of this family. Thank you for loving us unto death. Thank you, Jesus, that your love knew no limits. Thank you that, that though we love with limits, you never love with limits. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Help us receive this love afresh. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.